0: This is the Rockonomics Podcast episode number 43. I am your host, Dill, and today we welcome versatile drummer Michael Jerome. Michael is a genre-fluid drummer who's played folk, blues, gospel, pop, electro-metal, and ambient for the likes of Richard Thompson, the Blind Boys of Alabama, John Cale, Toadies, and Better Than Ezra, to name just a few. I met Michael while he was on tour with the Richard Thompson Trio, and our conversation goes a little something like this. stream video that it was you in a laundromat Uh and and the the random question i want to ask just recently just last week in thanksgiving week um there's a music journalist named laura snipe snaps sorry okay and and she said a feature i would read tour laundry (laughs) and she goes on to say do performers have multiple of the same outfit launder their sole outfit daily or just smell increasingly bad during every performance I figured that might be a nice icebreaker <laughs> for you and your long distinguished career. I
1: like this person. Yeah, I mean, hey, I think it would be all of the above. We're always we're we're always in pursuit of laundry and uh, the, the pursuit of happiness. And, and
0: <laughs> I, I've imagined that's changed over the years from your probably if you had a, your van touring days to your bus touring days to right. your you know where you are today.
1: Man, I tell you, I mean, it's still that's something that never it's goes away. Like I'm sure if you know you could uh, have an interview with Paul McCartney, he might share some. Of that. <laughs> he can have anybody do anything he needs, but I'm sure there's there's a there's a seed in there <laughs> to where laundry is still very important to him. <laughs> Getting it done. Yeah, it's funny.
0: I think uh, the entrepreneurs out there, I think there might be a market there somewhere <laughs> for uh, touring band uh, laundry.
1: No, that 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 thing you saw, that little clip, was done by a friend uh, who's, uh, calls himself Shawnee Blue, who does a lot of documentary, film, art, photography, snapshot, storytelling. Mm-hmm. And he's writing a, he's writing a, like a musical, play at the moment. Um, but he um, lives in D.C. Okay. And uh, he just is this. I don't know, a free spirit soul that just likes to capture the uniqueness of individuals, Mm -hmm. humans, (laughs) you know. Um, And he would catch up with us. He caught, that particular shot was in Millvale. It's just outside where uh, people, outside of Pittsburgh, exactly. And people in Pittsburgh don't even know where, you know, they've never (laughs) heard of it. But um, we had, we played a show out there at a venue there with, with Better Than Ezra. So, that's kind of where we started doing that, and it was freezing cold, and you know, laundry needed to be done, and so there we. <laughs> he goes, "This is perfect." <laughs> that's, per- that's funny. Speaking of
0: Pittsburgh, you're from Wichita originally, Kansas, right. yeah, but you're a Steeler fan, right? I am. How, how, how did be? this
1: happen? Yeah, uh, how do you how do you explain this? It, it makes no <laughs> sense, really. But I was a little boy, about five, six years old, and you know, uh, Wichita. Doesn't have Kansas in general. Doesn't have a football team. Missouri does, Kansas City, and and we, Kansans, usually default to Kansas City as a football team. Um, Well, I was the way I saw it is I was, I I lived in Wichita. You were teamless. I was teamless, and uh, we had a college football team at the time when I was really young, and then it it uh, was, you know, uh, terminated, the team and the coach. Actually, he was a member of our church uh, at the AME Methodist Church in Wichita. I remember he, uh, you know, people, the rumors going around about there not being a football team. The football team, Wichita State University colors and mascot are, are the Shockers, and the colors are black and yellow. Okay. So in my pursuit of trying to find a, a, a national football team, I thought, you know, as a five- and six-year-old boy, I'm going to find a team that matches the colors of <laughs> my city, you know, and, and of, of a university that I've, I was always at because my mother was working on her master's in concert piano performance at, at the university. So I was there all the time. Okay. So I was very familiar with the Shockers and all things Shockers. And, well, I'm a fellow
0: Steeler fan, and I'm from upstate New York. Yeah. I think, I think I had a similar thing. It was just basically the, I mean, I'm kind of career in graphic design. It was just a graphic design. It was just a black and gold. It was like, that's the coolest yeah. thing I've yeah. ever seen. So, And luckily, they were great when we were it growing lo- See, that's <laughs> the
1: thing. And then I start watching, and lo and behold, they, they like, were killing everybody. So I was like, wow, it chose well.
0: <laughs> um, so you touch upon a couple of things I, I want to start off with, and that's usually where you get, you know, where does music come from in your life and i know your mom was very instrumental right. as you she said she was at the college getting a masters degree at, in, in as a as a classical pianist right pianist
1: concert right? performance yeah
0: um choir director yes. singing teacher yeah and also church was big in your life is that yeah. you know kind of the first time you got to see hear it and perform it
1: yeah all of, all, of above, all of the above all things through her okay you know And obviously her being a a pianist and organist and whatever she needed to do to raise two kids by herself at that time, you know, uh, church was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And so I would perform live and play with her from childhood till I was about 17 years old before I started playing with bands.
0: The pop pop, poppins. The The pop pop. (laughs) poppins. Um, (laughs) Before, before we get to that, I also read in one of your bios that you somehow played percussion on the piano keys at one point. Did you start as... Have you always been a drummer, or did you start with I piano yourself? I think that
1: yourself? was probably the first indication that I had percussive inclinations, maybe, <laughs> much to the you know horror of my mother. And, I, man, I look back on that time, and I was just Man, what it must be like to try to raise a, a kid who is innocent innocently destroying... You know, you know, the ivories. (laughs) The the ivory, you know. So, uh,
0: yeah. So there's no other instrument in between, or there really
1: isn't. My my mom tried to get me to to uh, to play piano. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I I wouldn't. I wasn't a good student to her. Mm -hmm. And then when I expressed that I wanted to play drums, you know, and that that's. That was where I was more comfortable. She said, okay, you still have to take piano. So she, I had to take two years of piano lessons uh, at the university and uh, before she'd let me take drum lessons. And I, I can tell you this, I don't remember taking those two years of piano <laughs> lessons. I, I have no idea. I, that Those two years are gone. It's so funny. I just I, knew it was a, a means to an end. Okay.
0: Because I was going to say, I kind of wish... I have a limited music experience, again, with the drums. But I wish I knew more about music. Through, like, <laughs> I wish I was forced to take the piano. I think I'd understand just the whole gamut of yeah. everything. But that—did you walk away with that from your two years? Or was, you know, was it—is it in there somewhere from that two years? I, I think
1: it's in there somewhere. But I, I you know, to this day, I will never have be able to get proof of this. But uh, I swear to this day that somehow I think my mother may have had, a, you know, a word with. My percussion instructors who would then teach me at the time and I thought I was going to take drums you know I was finally going to get to sit down and play the drum kit all you know all day with my teacher Uh, and the first thing he did was say hello Michael and uh, we're going to work on uh, our scales on the marimba and that was it I did like marimba for an hour and then I played the snare drum for an hour that was my le- those were my lessons, and I was okay. like, I, I just, I remember just not understanding at all what was happening. Yeah, and yeah. I remember just expressing to him that you know I, I can play drums. He goes, Oh, I know, I know, we'll get to that.
0: It's like the the drum set. It's like it's like a, a sitting in the seat of a car. Just let me drive the car. Oh, Please man. let me drive the car. I know how to do it.
1: I was just, I just couldn't figure it out. I was dumbfounded <laughs> by the whole thing, but. So I I, I want to believe that she had a hand in that, or there was some sort of divine intervention. If not, to keep that aspect of you know that that musical aspect alive. Mm-hmm.
0: When you were starting with the drums, what was kind of influencing you? Because I, I know you're, I mean, you're the genres of music you're ungenreless, if that's a word. But what was you know what. At your age, (laughs) what were you kind of thinking you wanted to be?
1: Good (laughs) heavens. I don't know. It was, you know, it was kind of in the moment for me, you know, because we were listening to everything. Mm -hmm. You know, anything that could come in through the house is what I was trying to absorb. And maybe that's it, you know. But we also knew that, you know, my sister and I knew that, you know, our household was a bit different because we had a classical pianist as a a mom, you know, in this all-black neighborhood and this very beaten down kind of community (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and uh, no one else was doing what we were doing no one else seemed to be listening to what we were listening to and no one else seemed to be projecting music out of their house like that Right? everyone had music and there were drummers in my neighborhood I remember a guy used to go around the corner I'd kind of sneak around the corner to go watch he'd set up his drum sets in in his backyard (laughs) And just go to town, like for the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> so it was between that and a, and a rooster in town. You knew that, you know, that the neighborhood was alive. But uh, I don't know. I, I just, I just said that instinct, kind of. The, I, I guess the so. Drive. I have no idea because mom was pumping in classical music. There was jazz standards, obviously. There was also a lot of soul music coming through the radio stations. Then rap started, mm-hmm. you know, and then that started to kind of pique interest and I was sneaking my mother's record player from her bedroom while she was at work so I could link it up to mine and scratch a Sugar Hill <laughs> record and a Nucleus record together <laughs> and make and start doing my turntable stuff. And then my mom brought home a police record. Ghost in the Machine, and she said, someone says the drummer on this is really good. So, uh, you should listen to it. I said, okay. And that was pretty much it, because before that, I guess I was listening to like hooked on classics or something. (laughs) Stuart Copeland, that was my welcome to rock and roll. And, you know, pretty much became a disciple after that, you know, in rock. But Buddy Rich was my first concert ever, so that always... But that seemed to fit within that realm that I was already in. This right. jazz, college, big band, and all the stuff that they exposed me to then. So it was all over the map, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but, you know, after that, it just started to just take any direction. Mm-hmm. Anywhere it went, I went with it. So Pop
0: Poppins, you were around 17 years old. Yeah. If, uh, and with that, you said... You know, that welcomed you to a new world of managers, labels, and larger audiences. So were they, did you join them, were they established, or did you grow with the, I know, I know it's been like a, you joined them in 88, and technically, I think you're still with them, didn't they just do a,
1: or not, it was, We did a reunion, you know, I think there was never this official, you know. Right. When you're in the heat of the moment, there's always the, the breakup, or not, sure. you know. Sure. Uh, but it, there was never an official thing like that. Life took over, mm-hmm. you know, and I left Texas. So, things like that, and I joined another band at the time. But even that didn't stop it. You know, we did another record in the midst of that, mm-hmm. you know. So um, they were just all, you know guys that I always could. We made music easily, you know. That was never our our problem. Our problem was ourselves. Um, right. Growing up uh, and dealing with people outside of our bubble, like managers and right, the business industry. and the in, in, in industry. So, not having a clue. And the people that were around us, bless them too for trying, but they weren't necessarily, they weren't really managers. They were trying to be managers. Sure. You know, they were trying to, to learn as well and doing the best they could from connections they had in the music business from the past. Uh, We were completely incapable as a band. Uh, We were socially inept, you know, to to, to convey anything to anyone that we were something to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for us, we resonated with people, you know, like-minded people who just wanted to come hear us and watch us play music. And that in conjunction with the times where people just came to see live music for fun, Right, um, we were able to have a nice, a pretty good local career. You know. Now, was this
0: a band, did you join at the inception of it?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And were they all late teens, early 20s? or They
1: were early twenty? The two main guys were early 20s, and then the younger brother, uh, the guitar player's younger brother, Mark, he and I were in the same class in high school. So given your age, this is probably one of your first concerted efforts
0: to... You know, kind of stub yourself in a in a working band. Yeah. You guys make a little noise. You, you attract people that say, "Hey, I manage." Is that kind of how it evolved? Like, "Hey, I, I manage bands, or give me a why don't you give me a try to manage your you know manage."
1: That was pretty much Is it. Is that how it
0: how it went? Mm-hmm. And then, did you guys you know when you do say labels and large audience,
1: did you guys get a deal? We never got a deal. Okay. We were, you know, I guess what's the word courted. Okay. <laughs> And and I don't I don't remember it ever getting uh, up to a, any serious level of that you know because once they met us I want, you know or once word got out that you know you might not want to touch these guys because you know grunge is hitting right at the same time we were jingly jangly so pop say band you're kind of
0: college rock to me it's Absol- to, the, the, yeah R E M molds
1: absolutely and singing songs uh, you know that were ab- abstract and about you know. Love and you know John Lennon kind of you know jargon and uh, you know and and I think from the, the show standpoint you know this visual spectacle spectacle of uh, Bruce and and Billy and Mark were all very unique. Mark dressed like a, like Lestat. Billy would wear like what we called pilgrim shoes and with white socks pulled up to his knees and his you know. <laughs> Swashbuckling kind of gear, and and Bruce wore p- plaits Right, so funny. You know, and and this kind of garb, you know, this artist he look, you know, artist garb. So
0: that's it. Where was your head at the time? Like, what were your ambitions? Did, I mean, it, did you you want to get this group signed, and you want to skyrocket to the see?
1: That's it. I, I had no concept of that. I just wanted to play. Okay. Yeah. I had I just wanted to play drums and I wanted to play the music with the with the guys and play shows. That was that was extent of where I was at. So when that didn't really happen at first and they seemed distracted by other things, you know, substances or whatever, you know, I left and joined the Toadies mm-hmm. because they wanted to play. As, as far as I could see, they were serious about playing you know so I did that for like in a, a year or so right and uh yeah
0: at any point I went once the first time you toured I mean I'm assuming a probably band tours probably or,
1: 91 with right? the toadies with pop poppins okay and you know we went out with uh the spin this uh another local band from Waco Texas you know that had all gone to Baylor and they were living in Dallas and they were living in a house called the Spin House, and. We took off on two vans <coughs> and toured everything west or east of the Mississippi. Okay, so that's what we did. Anything we call east year? of thirty-five, man, like that's winter a good or summer? No, it was more. It was warmer okay. because we went up so into Canada and all that. So. Yeah, it got they heavy.
0: got get tough <laughs> fast. People are are familiar with the Toadies because they had a big hit. I think a couple years after. After your time. I
1: left like three and a half, four years. It was like four years before Rubberneck Mm -hmm. really exploded, you know. Uh, And most of those songs on that record had come from the time that I was with him. Mm -hmm. You know, Todd had written, uh, Vaden had had written most of those songs then. He was focused and dedicated and driven.
0: What, what was the impetus of you exiting
1: them? Um, Mark Hitchery, you know, my buddy from high school, calling me and basically saying, Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Billy didn't mean it. Or, you know, the, guy, the guys want to try again. We really should try again. He's really, you know, fending for his brother like he always has. You know, and my heart was obviously with the guys, you know, this is where, you know, this is where it had kind of started for me. And I always enjoyed, there was an ease with, with pop and, uh, and a inclusiveness with pop with, with Vaden and the toadies. I didn't have, uh, you know, it, that was, that was Vaden's show, mm-hmm. you know, good on him and, 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 them, they had a strong front person, singer songwriter, and performer to you know to project some really cool rock and roll songs. Um, we didn't have that. We needed we needed all of us to make that work. Right. I mean, Billy and Bruce were pretty, you know, fun and, and really good songwriters and super creative and had a thing like you know, I want to say like that of uh, McCartney and and Lennon. I would definitely say that they were. You know, to say that the influence there vocally wasn't there would be wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's what made it work. You know, people want to hear songs they can sing along to and remember the melodies. They like melodies and they like beats. Right. You know? And they love to bop up and down and dance, you know. And uh, it was really easy to be in that band without thought and just pump out material. And we worried about whether it was good or not later. <laughs>
0: So we're still looking at someone who's probably in their young tw- early twenties. Yeah. As yourself at this point. Yeah. What's um, what's your mindset? Like, when does it start to think, you know, of your next step? I, I'm I'm trying to think. Your next step was uh, actually something very different. Course of Empire. Right. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Around ninety three. Yeah, I mean, which is a more of a le- as as it's described on your site is electro metal. Which I'm
1: not sure that describes it after listening to it, <laughs> right? It, you know, I think, I think I, I probably should change that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's there because of me trying to figure out at the time what everybody was trying to do, ele- with you know with with this new move of electronic mm-hmm. music. has in, in what we call industrial music or mm-hmm. post-industrial, whatever. You're blending all these sounds and samples together with straightforward, you know, bar chord, rock and roll. But again, yet another very creative guitar player with Mike Graff playing like no other, you know, a very unique style. And the band as a whole had been just a very conceptual and clear agenda about how they wanted to be, uh, uh, what message they wanted to convey. Everything was completely driven by concept and mm-hmm. film and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> yeah. but that was that was my first uh, move into thinking outside of just playing drums. I had to be conscious of a career move, right? Making a decision about you know is this a good career move for, for me? You right? Know? And I had never made this you know a, a decision like that before. You know. And it was a pretty heavy thing, and I had lots of lots of mentors, inadvertent mentors in North Texas at the time. That you know, if you did anything then in in Dallas, it was probably going to be printed in the paper. If you had any notoriety at all, someone was going to put it in the paper, you know, in the local, you know, Dallas Observer mm. rag or something. The big moves that would happen with other drummers, kind of. Let me know that it was. You know, these things happen, and you have to think about these things, and it'll be, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Go, you, you gotta, you gotta think about what's gonna work best for you in these situations, and right. try to be as, as uh, integral and diplomatic about it as possible. Was your mother supportive of you pursuing a career in music? Absolutely. Okay, I, mean, I guess it helps now, when you have. <laughs> a I, I mother say, with a career in music. Yeah, it really helped. But that, all, that, 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 her career. In music also produced a bit of fear mm-hmm. for her to say you know you should go to school and find something to fall back on but I was really bad at that too I found two things that really wouldn't make me much money <laughs> what was geology and French I decided to go for <laughs> and I love geology but I was I'm horrible at math so I was never going to get past the chemistry or mineralogy part of it um, I still love it you know um, and the French, out of sight, out of mind, you know. Yeah. You've got to be using it. And, and unless I'm there or I'm talking with friends, you know, I'm, I'm not using it.
0: Do you get there much? I feel like... Uh,
1: I did for a with, while. With
0: Richard, he probably tours a lot of the UK.
1: You know, it really wasn't much with... Yeah, Richard in the UK, that was my first tour, you know, with him for sure. You know, I was there for, you know, about a year and a half or, or two years or so, but... It's mostly John Cale okay. that I would be there most of the time, you know, um, because John would go to a country and stay there for two weeks and then move on okay. to the next, 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 next. And we would do that every year, mostly during the winter and the most difficult times <laughs> of, of the year, but also the cheapest. Right. I was going to say, was that strategic? Definitely program? strategic. I think everything that... Uh, his management's done with him has been strategic and also just maximizing off of a, you know, a pretty iconic career. Right. You know, that, you know, by association, by what he did and what he was a part of. Sure. You know, they'll, he'll always sell tickets and people always want to see one of the last originals.
0: Yeah, you know. I mean it's funny you mentioned you know having mentors in in Texas, um, but just looking at your resume, that's one of the things that popped out on me was you know John Cale and you know you here tonight with Richard Thompson and Blind Boys of Alabama and Charlie uh, Musselwhite hmm. Like, what do you what do you what do you learn from these guys? You must learn <laughs> a hell of a lot. I you mean, learn that's, everything. That's a broad question, but yeah. like you know when you first meet and start to play, are you do you get quality time to kind of Ask them about their story or their lives or their you know, or do you just kind of you just kind of have to absorb it as it's happening and.
1: That's pretty much catch it, it as you it don't comes. get any time. Your time is, you're there to, to lay a foundation. You don't get time to to think about it, you know. You're also you also know you're being, brought in, on the, hope and reputation of somebody else or because they, they know they want you. You know, for whatever reason, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and what you what you could what you offer and what you could bring to the table, so to speak. You know, when I look back on all that, I'm you just never have time to really sit and absorb you're, you're, what you have. Your way of getting to know them is in the moment. You know, you get to know them best by exercising this very personal thing which is playing music together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's intense and it's it's personal, it's emotional, and it's all these things that no one wants to talk about, you know. Right. Because everybody's so busy being cool, you know. <laughs> uh, John Cale used to say, you know, we're all awesome musicians and we're all great musicians now so we can all calm down now or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all great,
0: okay. But for you saying something like, you know, he did it in the winter and that was a strategic move financially. Is that, you know, is that your personal wisdom from over the years looking back and thinking that's why I did it? Or at some point, it's, are you saying, why the hell are we going there in the winter? It's There's saying, definitely well,
1: a lot of hindsight in that. But we, we you're aware of it while it's happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think you're questioning yourself because you're in the midst of that. You're going, what the hell? <laughs> what the Fuck are we doing? <laughs> but but then you're on stage and you're playing the music, yeah. And then you know you're like, wow, I'm, I have the opportunity to, to really uh, absorb the gifts that this person has 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 to offer, and and really see. You know, with with John, the thing that I really loved was just I wanted to really uh, absorb the classical aspect is compositional as you know prowess and i loved doing the paris 1919 shows and the collaborations and then the nico tributes and you know where we're bringing in multiple artists to to see what their expression of a nico velvet underground right. song would be or their interpretations and everyone's there because of their influence from the music right and um so and and everyone would have a moment, a song or two, and that's it. From like Lisa Gerrard or Peter Murphy, so I th- I think that's that's where I found my most joy and my my comfort zone is where we all are trying to create something very unique and special in that moment, mm-hmm. and you're only going to see it once. It's only going to happen once. Yeah. You know? On the subject of I don't know if this. is Dirty
0: word for you, but like as a as a hired musician, as a hired gun, as they say, what was your was was Richard the first time? Was he your first big yeah. hired gun gig? Yes, um, that was back in '99. Mm-hmm. Since then, and what's interesting, I think it's a testament to your skill, success, personality, is that you have these ongoing relationships. So, like even I'm just my notes are like right. from '99 ongoing, Blind Boys of Alabama, 2000 ongoing, mm. better than Ezra. 2009 ongoing. Was there a conscious decision to seek out that type of work or how did that first come about?
1: No, you know, um, this is the thing with I think uh, I think there's two types of uh, hired guns, so to speak. The ones who are actively pursuing that work and are much more aggressive and the socializing of it, the schmoozing or whatever. And Quite, quite frankly, I, re- I respect, you right. know, if you're going to do this, you got to really get after it. I've never been good at that. So I've been good at, at trying to, you know, focus. I've been good at focusing on what was in front of me, and that was playing drums. So mm-hmm. whoever I was working with, I just really put everything into that. I think what happens is if if you're if you're doing it, and it's working out well, and you're resonating resonating with people and uh, impressing and turning heads, then you're going to get phone calls. You know, People are going to remember, even if you're not getting the phone calls, and then some one day it just might ring. So that's kind of how a lot of these came about. A uh, former manager named Donnie Graves in Los Angeles had acquired a new client, if you will, and vice versa, and Richard with Donnie. You know, a new relationship of trying to get, you know, move Richard's career into a a new territory. Mm -hmm. And he needed a drummer because his old, uh, older and and former, you know, tried-and-true drummer, Dave Maddox, uh, had uh, acquired a gig with Mary Chapin Carpenter at the time. Yeah. So that opened the door. Donnie Graves said, I've got your drummer, and he, he called me. Now, I don't know if, who was on that list before me, you know, and who was available and who wasn't, but I was in line, and I said yes because Donnie asked me. Mm-hmm. And he said, You don't know who Richard Thompson is, do you? And I was like, uh. <laughs> He said, Do yourself a favor, go down, this is going to date myself, go down to the internet cafe and look him up. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "All right." I did just that, and you know, it's page after page after I was, page. I was after say, page. even in '99,
0: he probably had 20 albums out. It was nuts.
1: <laughs> it just wouldn't, you know. Back then, of course, the computer wouldn't stop loading up pages, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and then I saw some things that I had, I, had, I, I knew, but I didn't know that that was him, right? You know, and this career and this genre of music that I was completely that was completely foreign to me. So then I then I started to reckon with what I had said yes to, but to me it was just like anything my mom had ever brought to the table. We're going to go play music. Mm-hmm. We're going to go play songs. Uh, and then as it got closer, I got a little nervous. And a buddy of mine came up and you know named James Kelly. He came up to me and he looked. He, I told him who I was working with, and his eyes kind of got big. <laughs> he didn't say a word. He just looked at me and he put his hands on my shoulders and he said. It's going to be okay. <laughs> You've played all these songs before. You're going to be all right. like that, you just like, talked me off the ledge because I got a little bit of anxiety going, what have, I, what have I done, you know? I don't know if I can do this. And I was flying. I had flown to see a friend in Germany. And uh, before I left, I got a, a cassette tape in the mail for 28 songs okay. to learn for them. Flew to Germany, visited friends, flew back to the States, uh, to JFK, and met the band. Met Richard and Danny Thompson and Pete Zorn and uh, his son, Teddy, was there. And we were all at the airport. And the last person I meet is Richard. And he said, he's like, do I get a hug or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're all like, they welcomed me like, son, you know, and uh, that relationship never really changed and we went to Am- we drove to amagansett long island oh right we played Stephen Talkhouse. we mm-hmm. rehearsed for three days and boom fourth day was a show and that was my first tour june of 99
0: that's awesome i know it well out there it's beautiful beautiful yeah. area um and so as you're like you said so that's that's a higher profile gig you do, your, you're doing your job well people see you so that segues into some of the things that followed with the Blind Boys of Alabama. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. You know, um,
0: <laughs> I've, got, I've got her name written down. I don't want to say it, but Michelle, how do you say your last name?
1: Deggie Cello. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, John Cale, right. et cetera,
1: et cetera. Yeah. A lot, you know, it's, it's association, it's proximity, you know, playing together with some of the musicians like my buddy Chris Bruce, you know, everything from George Clinton, you know, P-Funk to michelle mm-hmm. uh to uh, seal to cheryl Crow, okay. you know just did on and on and on his list, you know just paula cole just on and on his list and he brought me in with michelle and uh introduced me to you know which introduced me to this performer named liz wright mm-hmm. who i'm gonna do some work with later on to okay. next year so yeah i mean it's that that's all it is it's really that and you know, the phrase, you're only as good as your last gig. You know, it's cliche as it is, you know, <laughs> you've, every time you're up there, you have an opportunity to to kill it or suck. Right. <laughs> you know.
0: But that also, that makes me think, are you booked? Do you have 19, 2019 already planned out for you, pretty much?
1: Half of it, yeah. Half of it, I, I got a pretty good idea about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know these are these are the good times, you know. This and a bass player I I did a studio session with um, used to work for Arsenio Hall, and uh, his, on his show, and he gave me you know strong advice that basically said when the times are good that's when you work the hardest, you know, and you know that can resonate differently in different periods of your life. When I was younger, that would have just fallen on deaf ears or just been brushed off. You know, no, you know, older, you're like, oh, (laughs) because you can get tired out here really easy and it'd be real easy to just mismanage, not take advantage of, you know, where you are, the people you're coming in contact with and uh, really seizing the opportunities you have because of the opportunity you have right you know I mean this musicians and artists will struggle their whole lives to be able to do what some of us are doing mm-hmm. and wonder why and it's not working for them or and, you know and self implode and decide I can't I can't do this I, you know it's not working whereas I was the opposite you know I, I was lucky I had a uh, I have a great wife who looked me in the eyes when I was whining and moaning and, and really struggling, like artists always do, second guessing their existence, you mm. know, because the the social psychology of our country does not instill prestige or integrity or any or, or worth or value in being an artist. Mm. You know, it's not something. Oh, you're an artist. Okay, what are you doing? It's oh, what are you doing for money? Right. You know. So right there, it's it's belittling, it's condescending, and it sets a little seed in that in the artist that you most likely are going to fail at this. Instead of, oh great, let's figure out what you're going to do to make this work. Right. You know, what's your next project? I, I like to believe things are changing, but not really. The social psychology in in this country is still. Right. You know. You need to do these things in order to be successful in life. And it does not include being an artist.
0: Right. Well, it's funny. I mean, you've got the social psychology aspect, but you also have the economic environment
1: aspect. That's right. You have I mean, the, the econo- economic
0: reality. I mean, this business really got turned on its head in the digital age. And, you know, yeah. I guess being in your position, is like you got to be in that drum seat in front of breathing humans, you know. Or else. So we're, we're, where's home for you now? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Do you know how many days you've been on tour this year? I have no idea. Is it is it good part of the? I know you now about did. half of the year. You did? Yeah. And is there anything you do consciously to stay grounded or stay sane? Or I mean, you've been doing this a number of years. You know, just being in you know a second second tier town like ours. I know you were here this summer with Better Than Ezra. You were probably here. You know, so you're coming through all, the, all these cities time and time again. Is there right. anything that you're consciously, you know, consciously doing to <laughs> maintain your, your your sanity?
1: Well, before I was married, I don't think you're. you're I, I think I was living for different things and different reasons back then. You know, um, my mother passed away in 2007, and then I, when something like that happens. And you have any affinity or lo- or connection with them at all? You, when that happens, you lose the plot for a while. Mm-hmm. You don't realize how much you're actually trying to live for, for them or for other people, or and how much of it is for you. And you're, there's all this this stuff going on while you're trying to figure out who you are again, you know, and right. what what you're doing. Uh, and after I got married, the, and my wife looking at me. You know, in the eyes, saying, you know, know, I was like, you can't expect me to be a musician in this this environment and make it. What do you want me to do? She goes, I do expect you to be to do that and to succeed. You are a drummer, and I expect you to make it work. And that was that alters your entire psychology when you have somebody that believe that actually says Mm -hmm. something like that, a partner that instills that sort of belief but also just like it was, it's beyond belief it's like no this is a, this is the reality you, this is what you are this is what you do right. this is how we will succeed so go to work like everybody else does shut up yeah. <laughs> easier said than done but it's at the end of the day after all those years of second guessing myself it is easy you just have to you have to grab a hold of it and that embodies a clear like you have to be a realist to an extent
0: mm-hmm.
1: like you said the, there's there's a there are economic ramifications to being an artist when times are good you have to learn how to be a, a manager you know you have to go biblical <laughs> <laughs> and prepare for the drought because it's coming, right? You know, it's gonna, it will come. There's no, well, things are good. I'm, I'm going to be on this high for a while. That's stupid. That's your first mistake, mm-hmm. you know? So figure out how to be a manager and figure out how to be creative and innovative as a business person, mm-hmm. you know, learn what makes uh, things tick Right. as an artist and also as a business, you know? treat yourself like a business. Learn how to, you know, you might oppose these things, you know, from a very punk and street level, you know, you don't use words like sell out and you don't do this and you don't do that. And it's like, okay, yeah, I know. I, I rode that train for a really, really long time. And I respect anyone going through that. You know, take your time. do Do what you need to do. But, you know, if it works out for you, great mm-hmm. being like that great but for most people they've got to learn how to, to break their comfort zones and become two things at once you don't get to just be an artist yeah. it's, it's, that's just the way it is I,
0: I, I, I can see parallels to that in, in a lot of professions like when you first get in something you just want to do the job but the further along you go you kind of have to take note of your environment and how things work and what's above you, what's below you, what's to the left, to the right. Right. You yeah. know. Um, which is, is Halls of the Machine, is that, is that currently kind of your, you know, is that kind of what you go back to? Yeah, I think
1: you talked about grounding sources, you know, that's a grounding source. You have to have a, a thing that you always go back to, you know. So, number one grounding source for me is my wife. You know, we constantly have to talk about what's next what now what's our next move so there's always something for us to be trying to achieve mm-hmm. or always something for us to try to you know achieve next you know and so that's a grounding source you know uh next is is halls of the machine you know that's my creative outlet where <clears throat> i have two other guys with mike Graf from course of empire and van eric martin who i grew up with in fort worth very accomplished you know probably the most musically accomplished of the three of us and uh, you know composer and producer with our our group and we explore everything we possibly can explore and we make what we make Mm -hmm. and then we (laughs) put a stamp on it and we move on (laughs) because like you say records don't sell anymore you don't get to put a record on the on the shelf and watch the watch the, the you know the numbers go up right. because people are just it pulling it. it down. You know,
0: do you, is halls of the machine? Do, do you guys get out much live, or is that more of a like? I was going to I was going to ask you the question. Like, do you guys have aspirations to do soundtrack work?
1: Absolutely.
0: Like, I felt I don't know if I, I read it somewhere, but it, get, it tipped me off. But I was like, and even listening to it, it's like, God, this could score something really cool.
1: Absolutely. That was always the kind of goal. You know, having absolutely no idea really at that time how to get into that and the channels that you have to go through to to make that happen. Very difficult. But we still do it, we still pursue that while trying to be very arty (laughs) and conceptual. I mean, you don't, this is, it borderlines unlistenable at times. And then other times, subconsciously comfortable in the background or turned up really loud mm-hmm. consciously, you know. I said all that to say, <laughs> get it. You got to buy it, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the one thing I want to touch upon to that, and this came up recently with, um, I spoke with the bass player for Toad the Witch Rocket that did a Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaign for what you guys did. You guys right. were seeking... 10,000 mm-hmm. you succeeded got 11,000 mm-hmm. was that harder I mean I know I know some of the problems they have like there's there's this back end there's you know fulfilling the orders and you know managing people's expectations and their complaints and this and that was that was it a fairly positive experience or was it a largely I think learning experience
1: <laughs> absolutely super learning uh, experience and very positive and uh, uh, eye-opening because you realize what really makes you know you. who is Halls of the Machine I don't know you know how many people know about Halls of the Machine a few, a few Course of Empire fans
0: mm-hmm.
1: how many other people know about it a few people who know Mike Graff or Michael Jerome or Van Eric Martin that's it that's very very small So then you learn that how how do we raise that money when you realize that, oh, you have friends who respect what you do. They like you. There's an affinity for you. And they really don't care about House of machine at all. But they do care about you succeeding Mm -hmm. because they have respect and admiration for what you're doing and your diligence in what you're doing. 75% of the attention we received through that Kickstarter and raising the money, 78% came from Facebook, uh, contacting people via Facebook. So that tells you how powerful that tool is. Right. Um, 1 to 3% came from Kickstarter itself. Uh, most of the people that really helped us raise money were all friends and, and fans of projects, other projects that I was a part of. From better than Ezra to Richard Thompson, so on and so forth. So, because of their curiosity in other in other musical avenues, I might be a part of, they gave, and that was extremely enlightening and sobering, you know, humbling, right. without question. Um, it's, yeah. inter-
0: it's interesting to hear because as you were speaking, as I asked the question, I was thinking. Well, wow, Kickstarter is probably a pretty good way to discover new artists. Because I know there's a whole genre of people yeah. looking to finance their thing, but being at 3% only came from Kickstarter. <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, Proof that point, not true. incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so we know now that we have to... We've got to perform... We have to play live, and we have to manage that somehow while everyone is running businesses... You know, doing really difficult jobs from uh, counseling uh, homeless people and, you know, mentally ill and drug addicts, raising families, uh, to touring. Mm-hmm. You know, Halls of the Machine is a, is a very close second and, and third, or I should say distant sometimes. Mm-hmm. Some years it's very distant. But last year we broke a, we broke a record last year of... Uh, four performances in Dallas
0: <laughs> what, what do you uh, what do you mean
1: <laughs> we are we, we play so rarely oh that you yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was a record we breaking four performances yeah we, a, we managed to play year. in January <laughs> like May September like something something like that and like two shows and one in Fort Worth and uh our first show in Fort Worth since maybe 2006, <laughs> you know, was like, it was really funny, <laughs> but, uh, we're, we were elated, you know, just to be able to play. Yeah. And it was really nice to see people who, you know, were, will always be diehard course of empire fans. And now seeing people who have decided to become or have become halls and machine fans mm-hmm. just, just because or whatever. And, uh, and to see them, come out you you know we know we're always we really we really are seeing the cream of the crop (laughs) (laughs) that's it so before I get
0: into I I end each show with uh final five questions and I know I have a question after that but uh just quickly is is better than Ezra is that the biggest in terms of I guess status or widely known is that the biggest band you're currently
1: I would say so yeah how did that come about uh, I was playing with the band uh, Pleasure Club. It was fronted by James Hall. Is that out of New Orleans? He, he was. They were originally out of New Orleans, okay. and now they're like he and the bass player Grant are both Atlanta-based now. Okay. Uh, Mark Hutner, our guitar player, is in New York. And um, we would play in New Orleans at Howlin' Wolf all the time. We had a really good relationship with Howie down at Howlin' Wolf. And Grant and the band... They knew better than Ezra from back in the day, as we did. You know, our bass player with Pop Poppins used to run sound for, you know, better than Ezra when they would come to the you know the Hop in Fort Worth. And okay. You know, and he'd be like, "You should come down here. This band's pretty good, man. And there's <laughs> nobody here, you know." And you know, they obviously went on to, to do really well for themselves. Good band, you know. So uh, these are things again, and yet another band I could, I would never have imagined. Being a part of coming from the the world that I had been in, the more uh, much more uh, industrial and punk and you know gothic world, so to speak, right. to you know a straight pop formatted you know rock and roll band, but it, it's you know that was a good that was another one of those decisions that was uh, that came at the right time. Mm-hmm. you know, in my life when I needed, when I needed, when I needed it, number one, and uh, also helped me get, you know, after my mother died, it kind of helped me, you know, get my shit together, right. you know, they've, they've shown me nothing but respect since day day one, and uh, we've all, we always have a ton of fun. <laughs> it looks like it. <laughs> Was that a formal audition? Did they
0: audition? Yeah, they did. I came out,
1: and that didn't go so well the first time, and because I wasn't nearly as on my game, and I was still scattered to what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And Kevin just asked me a question. He was like, "You know, we really, you know, really like you as a drummer, and you know, really want you, but we just need to know what you know. You, we thought you kind of didn't really know the tunes that well, and you know, and and that kind of like, he was like, I was like, boom, bam, whoa! <laughs> you know, st- that stung and woke me up. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, he goes, oh, "I just want to." You know, he asked me, "You know, we just want to know what you want to do." And so I was faced with the question right then and there. You know, Thank you,
0: Richard. right then and there, did you have to say, "You know, what I need to think about it"?
1: No, I told him immediately. <sighs> okay. Like it woke me up immediately, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe it was a bit of a challenge. I, 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 th- I don't think that. Kevin is not Mr. Deer in headlights to me. He knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, and he's also being honest yeah. with that question, you yeah. know. And I needed to know. What I, I needed to wake up and figure out what I wanted to do and get back to that place that, you know, I always was. I wanted to play, Yeah. you know, and I didn't want to be floundering around trying to, you know, grief-stricken as I was, you know, wallowing in the woe is me territory. But just get get back to work yeah you know and, and they gave me the opportunity to, to do that so it's great yeah' I'm a,
0: I dig them I'm a big fan of yeah KT. yeah <laughs> all right uh, so let's wrap it up in uh, last five questions everybody gets final five <laughs> the first question I've been asking it's terrible to ask it this way because with all the fires in Southern California but it's it's basically if your house is on fire and your loved ones are safe your pets are safe. What would you go back in to retrieve that's representative of, you know, a a music artifact or something that, you know, is music related that you'd you'd like to save? Wow.
1: My mom's music. Okay.
0: That's it. Do you have it recorded?
1: Yeah, I've got recordings and there's some sheet music and stuff like that. My whole thing is letters, photos, and that's it. Yeah. And if it was possible this beautiful uh, hand drum that my friend Win- wendy rover in portland henned okay you know yeah. <laughs> that's it that's cool <clears throat> question number two is if
0: we were at liberty to give you a check for a million dollars to give to one charity one charity only who would you select
1: oh wow as the probably the the women's organization that that fights uh trafficking human
0: trafficking Question three on a lighter note, although you're, you're dead. But <laughs> what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates?
1: <laughs> wow, that's huge. Well, it probably would just go back to like my earliest memories of what uh, we would hear while my mom was working on her master. So it'd probably be a Chopin piece. Okay. Yeah, that's nice.
0: On the flip side of that, Wood is stuck on repeat in hell. <laughs>
1: bring
0: <laughs> <laughs> God <laughs> bless out, those guys. Come on and play. That's yeah. fine. Um, and last question is, uh, and it's funny, Chris just put it into words. It's, it's usually what's, what concert had the most impact on you. But he said, what concert like became church to you? He, he mentioned seeing Jane's addiction, it was like church. Yeah. Like, he never yeah. thought it could transcend like that. Yeah. Um, so what concert in your lifetime Really was profound to stick with you.
1: Yeah, that's Buddy Rich. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so way back in the oh, yeah. Wichita. Yeah, yeah he moved. He moved space and time.
0: How old were you at the time?
1: I was six. Okay. I remember every detail of it. Yeah. <laughs> it probably helps too that I got his autograph, and the next day I got Ed Shaughnessy's autograph. And, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. But these guys were, yeah, they moved moved air and they were playful and they did it effortlessly but it looked but uh, they made it look effortless and like really difficult at yeah, the yeah, same yeah. time yeah you know and we're just sweat dripping all <laughs> of this guy <laughs> I was gonna
0: say it's, it's crazy to go back and see his some of his videos
1: oh my god I mean the rumor is is like that one one of those famous solos that's that's posted on Facebook is say he literally has a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> But you look at him and it looks like he's, you know, he goes flush red for a second and like, and, uh, you know, I've often said that, you know, I believe drumming saved my life many, many times over, you know, from illnesses or, you know, things that I didn't think I had, you know, or or, uh, illnesses that I may have had, but I wasn't conscious of. Um, But by playing you I'm sweating profusely or whatever I'm releasing all these toxins and it just and just the mental capacity you know helps keep my keep me in shape and focused yeah you know spiritually emotionally physically
0: well it's funny you segue into my last question what, it, since you've been a part of so many you know so many z- genres what do you physically like to play versus what do you emotionally like to play
1: well, physically, there's this guy behind me, Mr. Richard Thompson. Mm. He, he gives me, like, <laughs> the freedom to do and just be myself. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work I'm doing with Richard is honestly, the, like, my favorite stuff on the planet. Um, uh, and the Halson machine, you know. Yeah. So. What was the other half of that? It was uh, Emotionally. Oh, Yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. So which one was which? Yeah. are <laughs> they both? The first one was, the second was Emotional. What was the first one? <laughs> it was on first, though. <laughs> um, all
0: right. Michael, thanks for giving did, me did,
1: a... Did we manage something? We, we got through... Uh, you got a lot of editing to do, bro. And I only got a couple
0: of Cool house. It's always the it's always the heaven and hell questions. It's just a little
1: that close to space. Yeah, it's funny. I yeah, you know, sorry to throw offspring off under the bus, but it's funny. The my sister never listened to rock and roll ever, and then she called she calls me. I, I meet her and we're in her car, and she goes, "Man, have you heard this?" And she plays that song. I like "Are you kidding me? This is what brings you into rock and roll?" And she goes, "I love it." It's like, damn, I taught you nothing. She was only hip hop up to that point. I so was funny. like, wow, Offspring broke my sister.
0: <laughs> God, that had to be like 92, 93. Yeah, really early. Yeah, I remember so. when I was living in. California. Yeah. Michael, a., hey, man. thanks so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. it man. man, that's fun. All right. Many thanks to Michael Jerome, who is just a cool guy to hang out and talk to. You hear time and time again how when you audition for a gig, it's the hang that is many times the deciding factor. I could see how people gravitate to Michael and how that's, uh, that's an advantage for him. He's a, he's a fun guy to be around and uh, really kind of puts you at ease. You can keep up with Michael on his website, michaeljeromeondrums.com, and follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Coincidentally, you can do the same with the Rockonomics podcast and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're always open for feedback, so leave us a comment or just say hello uh, when you get when you feel the need. When you feel the need. All right, it looks like we've got two more shows before the holidays kick in, and we take a break. So join us next week for a special compilation episode of bonus material with many of our recent guests, like Jeff Pilsen of Foreigner, Sam Ferraro of Maroon Five. Dean Dinning of Toad the Wet Sprocket and many others from this past year. All right, that's a wrap for episode 43. Good night, Cleveland.